Good morning, Deer Creek Church. It's a real great thing to at least have you all gathered around your TVs, have you all gathered together, and just come and celebrate who God is. And I just have to confess, with the way that the world has been over the course of the last couple months and has its increasingly seeming to just ramp up on how, uh, how evil is really taking hold in our world. I just have to confess, uh, it's good to be here on Sunday worshiping and praising God for who he is. I'm sure that all of you are aware that uh, there's riots going on throughout the United States, uh, night after night. And I want to spend some time just praying very briefly uh, for God to act in the world in a mighty way. You know, we're studying Revelation and the closing words of Revelation, the last words that Jesus has to say for his people are these. He says, surely I am coming soon. And John finishes by saying, amen, come Lord Jesus. So I want to pray just before we begin that God would open our eyes to his word, but also that he would bring his justice, his peace and his righteousness to this world, which seems to be spinning out of control. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would send your son, King Jesus, to come to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That is what we de desperately need, for him to come and bring justice, to bring peace. God, we long for peace. We long for unity, and we have this longing for joy. So we pray, send your son, and we pray to you, Jesus, come quickly. Delay no longer. And God, we also pray... As the psalmist prayed, as we enter your word, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walks in the law of the Lord. Make us a people who walk in your law, who walk in your word, who reject the things of the world and instead embrace the things of the kingdom of God, namely the king himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name, in his power, by his spirit. Amen. Well, like I said, we're in Revelation, and this is officially week 18 of Revelation. So you guys have been extremely patient as Dwayne and I have gone through this book, and I'm sure you've noticed this. Revelation is quite repetitive. Revelation actually talks about things over and over and over again. It almost seems as if John is telling the same story over and over and over again, and in reality, he is. That's one of the remarkable things about Revelation is it wants to pound this same story into our minds and our hearts over and over and over again. It's, it's just doing it from different angles and different vantage points and in different ways. It's kind of like my kids. They, my kids love movies. And my son Eli and my daughter Lainey have gotten on a troll's kick. So when my kids wake up from their naps, I ask them, hey, what TV show do you want to watch? And they say, we want to watch the movie Trolls. And then when I say, well, what song do you want to listen to later on in the day? They say, we want to listen to the Trolls soundtrack. Or they want a daddy to come play with them outside. And they say, let's play Trolls together. They just do it over and over and over again. It seems like it's almost relentless. And I'm, I'm pretty sure of this. If you had to, you could really summarize Revelation in just two words. Now, it's 22 chapters. It's 22 chapters. But I think it's fair. You could actually summarize it in two words. And it's this. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. That's how you would summarize Revelation. The Bible says that three things stand in opposition 
to God, his kingdom. Three things, that's it, stand in opposition to Jesus. And they're described as these, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These three are opposed to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Over the past couple weeks, chapters 12 through 16, we saw the downfall of the devil, the downfall of Satan. And today, what John wants to talk about is another opponent to Jesus and his kingdom, and that is the world. Or better yet, you could put it like this, it's worldliness, worldliness. Worldliness, according to the Bible, is an enemy of God. And we don't talk about worldliness very much anymore. And, and for a couple of reasons, a couple of those reasons are that worldliness is gravely misunderstood. So we're going to start just by asking, what is worldliness? What is this enemy to God and his kingdom? Mike Horton, he recently started out an article saying when he was growing up in church, he said he was severely confused when he would read his hymnal that he would have to sing out of. He would flip the hymnal open and on one page he would sing, This is my father's world. And the lyrics to that go, This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. And he would say, after singing that, he'd flip over five or six pages, and the title would read this, This world is not my home. And the song lyrics for that is, This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. So which is it, hymnal writers? Is this our Father's world, or are we just passing through? Well, Mike Horton, he makes a good point, uh, because the Bible makes this point, is that there is a lot of confusion, because the Bible speaks of the world in two different ways. The one way that the Bible looks at the world is as an object of God's love, an object of God's care, because God looks at creation as its maker, as its creator. He cares for it, and he cares for all his creatures in it, including humankind. That's one way that the Bible looks at the world. But there's another way that the Bible looks at the world, and that is as the dwelling place of sin and sinners. That is fallen creation, fallen world. So when the Bible talks about the world, there's two sides to the coin, right? There's the side that, of the world where it's the place God created and loved, and it's also the place of fallen sin and sinners. So when the Bible talks about worldliness, it's defined as this. It's the system by which Satan props up sin. That's what worldliness is. Or you put it this way. Worldliness is the structure and system in society by which sin is promoted, and it's given a space to flourish. Now, remember when you were in high school, you were in high school uh, chemistry class or biology class, and you'd have that Petri dish, and you'd put a piece of cheese in the Petri dish, you put the top on it, and that Petri dish gave that area a space for bacteria to grow and to flourish and to actually root up and be promoted. And that's how the Bible talks about the world or worldliness. It's the space, it's the system where sin is made to grow and flourish and look normal. So for example, our world is full of this, right? When you're driving down the road and you see a billboard 
that has a picture of a nice Lexus. Nothing wrong with a Lexus. But right next to that Lexus is a woman in lingerie tempting you to indulge the lust of your eyes. That is worldliness. When legislation is passed, legislation like Plessy versus Ferguson, right, where the sin of racism is given the ability to flourish in our world, that is an example of worldliness. When you're clicking through social media, you're on Instagram, and you just sense in yourself discontentment and ingratitude, and you start thinking, look at that person's clothes, look at that person's family, look at that person's possessions, and you start saying, oh, look at my dingy clothes, look at my dingy house, look at my dingy kids, look at my dingy husband. Well, a lot of husbands are dingy, right? So that maybe that example doesn't hold. But that's worldliness. One last example. When public service officials or our elected men and women commit injustice and are not held accountable for their actions, that is worldliness. And John, as he's done throughout Revelation, right, he's done this throughout Revelation, he records an image of what worldliness looks like, and it's described in extremely stark terms. In chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, John is visited by one of these seven angels who had the seven bowls of God's wrath and his judgment. And he tells John, come and I'll show you the judgment of worldliness. And he describes it as a great prostitute. A great prostitute. And this prostitute is riding on the beast that we saw chapters earlier who was described as the embodiment of evil, the embodiment of Satan in the world. So worldliness is described as this prostitute riding on a beast unleashed by Satan. So why would John describe worldliness in this way? Why a prostitute? Well, in the Bible, when the Bible talks about God's creation, God was not just some distant creator who created the world and then turned his back to go play a game of cosmic backgammon or something like that. No, God actually enters into the world. He enters into what the Bible calls a covenant. And a covenant is described in very similar terms as a marriage. So when the Bible talks about our relationship with God, it is a relationship of marriage. God being our husband and humankind being his bride. That's how intimate of a relationship that God has with us. So when the Bible talks about sin or worldliness that promotes and endorses sin, it's not as if we're just doing some bad things. It's actually the equivalent of spiritual adultery, spiritual infidelity, and spiritual prostitution against God. Think of the Old Testament, right? Israel was described in these beautiful covenant marriage terms. And when they entered the land, they had God who was at the center of their land. And they wanted God. They loved God. They wanted God to be there for them. But they also wanted Baal and Molech and Asherah, the gods of all the other nations around them. They wanted God, but they just wanted to add to him. They wanted to prostitute themselves out to these other gods. And think about how this would work in your marriage. I just think if I were to go to my wife and say, hey, Hannah, you know what? I love you. I care for you. I want you around. You, you do a great job taking care of the kids, making me feel loved. I love and appreciate everything you do. But I want to introduce you to Jessica. And Jessica is going to come and she's going to live with us for a while. And what do you think about that, Hannah? Well, 
My wife would rightly have feelings of jealousy and feelings of anger toward me and toward Jessica. And that same feeling we would have as husbands and wives is the same way that God views sin and worldliness in a world that he created and loves. It's spiritual adultery and spiritual prostitution. There aren't sanitary words to describe it. So what does John want to show us about worldliness through this prostitute? He wants to actually show us a few things. It's not just that it's prostitution. He actually wants to show us very specific things about worldliness. And I'm going to mention four, the first of which is this. It's just how alluring and attractive worldliness actually is. In chapter 17, beginning in verse 3, John gets a vision of this prostitute for the very first time. And the angel, we're told, carried John away in the spirit into the wilderness. And he says he saw this woman, this prostitute, sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great. Babylon in the Old Testament is the city out there that represents life apart from God, that represents humankind exalting themselves above God. And this is written on her head, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So notice first, what what is this prostitute wearing? Why does John want to describe what this prostitute is wearing? Because he wants us to see just how alluring and attractive worldliness makes sin look. In verse 4, we see she's wearing purple and scarlet, expensive clothing. She's adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, things that make her look beautiful. She holds a golden cup in her hand, all of which, all of these are symbols of beauty and opulence. In other words, worldliness makes sin look attractive and appealing. It never shows itself for the abomination that is actually at root within it. It never shows itself in its true colors. It always appears good and beautiful. Sin always seems like the best option, doesn't it? When you're faced with a dilemma, whether or not I'm going to actually record this amount of money on my income tax, when I'm going to decide any decision where sin is an option, right? Sin always looks good. It always looks like the best road. It always looks like the most efficient road. It always looks like the most effective road. It's always the most attractive option. But like John says, for all of worldliness's beauty and making sin look attractive, he says, verse 4, I love the imagery, he says, in the cup of this prostitute, is the abominations of her sexual immorality. That word abominations literally means a foul, offensive, putrid odor. Like the worst smelling thing you can think of. 
I think of when I am mowing my lawn on a Saturday afternoon and I come back inside and I'm a little bit sweaty and I go and I get a nice drink of water and I'm really hungry. It's just about lunchtime and I see that egg salad in the Tupperware that I made a week ago and I'm just longing for an egg salad sandwich. And you know, if you have egg salad longer than two days, that's some pretty foul smelling egg salad. So when you go and you open, you hope it's going to deliver. And the second you open up that Tupperware, you are hit in the face with the abomination of egg salad. That is how John wants you to see worldliness. Anything that makes sin look attractive is an abomination in the sight of a God. It is a foul smelling odor and offensive to God, something that God wants nothing to be a part of, and he wants nothing for us to be a part of. Our culture actually even sees this, right, when it portrays sin as attractive, but then we also see the downfall of what sin actually leads to. I, I, I used to watch this show, Behind the Music, on VH1, and every VH1 Behind the Music is the exact same story. It's this band that started in a very nowhere city who wanted to chase their dreams of fame and fortune and riches and sexual pleasure and they ride this nice mountain up. And right as they reach the pinnacle of their wealth, the pinnacle of their fame, the pinnacle of their sexual endeavors, all of a sudden things begin to unravel. And the band starts relationally dissipating and starting their own solo careers. And several of them get addicted to drugs. And others go bankrupt. And at the end, there's always this closing scene where they're interviewing the lead band member and he says the same thing, I wish I could take it all back. I never knew that it would lead to a life like this. That's because sin, while it always looks attractive and while worldliness will always make sin look attractive, never delivers on what it promises. It's like a golden cup full of abominations. But the second thing John sees is that this prostitute worldliness is pervasive. It's everywhere and around every single corner. In verses 1 and 2, John says that this prostitute is seated on many waters. And John actually throws us a bone later on in verse 17 where he says that these waters are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages, meaning she's in every culture. You can't go anywhere without finding worldliness. There's no place where worldliness is a pro- not a problem, not even in the church, not even in nonprofit agencies, not in political parties. It's everywhere because we bring worldliness with us. Even, you know, radical Christian groups that reject culture and go and live off the grid, right, and they try and be very much a holy and distinct, set-apart culture. I, I think of the stories of, uh, there, there's this kind of joke about a Quaker couple, And, you know, Quakers are known for going and living off the grid and kind of rejecting things of the world. It's a story of this Quaker couple, and they're sitting down after a night of hard day's work. And the husband looks over to his wife, and he says, man, you know, the whole world is just going crazy. Sometimes I think we're the only Christians left. And I'm starting to get kind of suspect about you, honey. Right? This idea that we can selectively... Uh, mark ourselves off from worldliness is just laughable because the Bible says it's everywhere. We bring it with us. And we see even it it, it reaches the highest and lowest parts of the world. Verse 2 
says that kings have committed sexual immorality with her, and the earth is intoxicated by the cup of her abominations. They've lost all ability to resist her. They're all drunk with the wine that she has in her hand. Her allure and her presence is too strong. This is not 3-2 beer, right? Where you can have five or six and you're going to be okay. No, one sip of her allure, one transgression and giving into worldliness means that you're intoxicated by her and you get drawn in. As one author says, we begin by saying, I'm going to do sin. And then in the end, sin starts doing us. Wow. So worldliness is attractive. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. But most notably, and this is where I want to spend a good deal of our time, is that worldliness is simply impressive. It's impressive. She looks powerful. She looks influential. She looks almost insurmountable. This is verse 6. And I saw the woman... Drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And this is John speaking now. He says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. That word there literally means I marveled a great marvel. And no wonder why. She drinks the blood of the saints. That is Christians, right? She makes Christianity look ridiculous, look weak, look insignificant. Her way of the world seems to obliterate the Christian way of the world. The Christian way of living and belief seems to be stomped under her feet. You know, I was speaking with a friend recently, and he said, it's really funny reading Revelation, because I would imagine John would have talked to people within the Roman Empire, which was the biggest culture, the biggest influence in the world at the time, and he would have gone to those people, and he would have said, hey, I'm going to tell you something. A thousand years from now, Maybe even longer, maybe even 2,000 years from now, I can guarantee you one thing. The Roman Empire will cease to exist and the kingdom of Jesus Christ will still be going. And what do you think the people of that culture would have done? They would have laughed at John to his face. She is impressive. But what makes her even more impressive is who she rides on. In verse 3, we see that she rides on a character we've already seen before. She rides on the scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had on its head seven heads and ten horns. We've seen this beast before. I, when I was growing up, you know, I, I used to see these Russian dolls. You remember what these Russian dolls are? They're these big wooden dolls that are hollowed out on the inside. And you take the first one apart, and inside is a doll that looks just like it. And you take off the top to that one, and inside is an even smaller doll. And you just keep going down the line until you're left with this tiny one that's at the bottom of them all. And the enemies of Jesus are very similar. John looks, he sees this prostitute, but underneath her work and her influence is this beast. And inside this beast, right, underneath that beast is the one that actually controls it all, and it's Satan. So see, the prostitute is not the root of the problem, but the threat is actually much deeper. The problem, or the prostitute, is, not, is just a cover for Satan himself. Satan, working through the evil of human hearts, has made worldliness look attractive. Satan, 
working through human hearts, has made worldliness pervasive. Satan, working through my heart and your heart, has made worldliness look impressive because we constantly go along with it. And we shouldn't expect otherwise. See, John sees the work of Satan, the beast, and the prostitute for what they are really doing. And he doesn't make any qualification about it. He says that these three are of one mind. That's the prostitute, Satan, and the beast. They hand over their power and authority to the beast, and they make war on the lamb. That is Satan's mission. That you would join in his campaign and his war against the lamb, against God. That you would hate God as much as Satan hates God, and he's willing to use worldliness to do it. So what does this war look like? Why is worldliness so impressive? I like the way one author put it. He said, if Jesus' mission in this warfare is that you love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, then the mission of Satan is to love yourself so much more than you love your neighbor or God. Do you see that? That's the mission of Satan, that you would place yourself at the center of your world, that you would elevate yourself, not just above your neighbors, but above God himself. That's his mission. That's what this warfare looks like, that Satan wants you to think you are the king, that you are the center, and that you deserve all of the world and its riches. That's Satan's warfare. And our, our culture, by the way, embraces this line of thinking. We are actually saturated in this line of thinking. After all, how often do you see a social media post or hear a friend say things like this? They say, I need to take time to focus on me. Or I need to love myself better in this season of life. I just haven't been loving myself well. Or I need to think of myself for a change. Or I need more self-love and care in my life. I haven't loved myself well of late. And, and here's the thing. I just want to point this out. Many people do very sacrificially. People within Deer Creek, people I know, people I love, do pour themselves out in sacrifice in that way. And, in that, and for those people, you do need to care for yourself. But I do want to ask the question, is that really the problem that is rooted and deeply grounded in our hearts and in our culture? Is the problem in the world today and the problems of our life in American culture because we are just too selfless of a society? We are just too exhausted by how much we are caring for the needs and the concerns of others. And we're just spending way too much time serving and loving and thinking about other people and their concerns and their hardships. Or is the truth completely otherwise? And I would just say, watch TV for eight minutes and you'll see what's really going on, right? Hair care products will say, buy this product. Why? Because you're worth it. You're worth it. Why would you deprive yourself of this conditioner? You deserve it. Or hamburger companies say, have it your way. We don't even have it our way. You, you deserve it your way. I don't know why you wouldn't just make hamburgers at your house at that point, but you can have it your way when you come here. Come here, come here, and you can have it your way. Or delivery companies say, what can we do for you? Movies say that the purpose of marriage is that so you would complete me, that your goal in life is to complete me, to care for me, to love me, to affirm me, and to fulfill me. 
I, would, I just read this National Institute of Health survey that began in 1950. It ran to 1980, and I still think it's continuing today, but I haven't found the new statistics on it. But the National Institute of Health survey in the early 1950s polled teens from the ages of 14 to 16, and they were asked this question, am I an important person? In the year 1950, 12% of students agreed to that. In 1980, 80% of students agreed with that statement. I can't imagine what it would be today. Now, don't get me wrong. Your kids are important. Not as important as my kids, but they're important, okay? Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that the world might not be right here, that the thing we don't really need is more self-care, more self-love, more self? Or is the problem actually that we are too selfish, too self-giving, too self-loving in the first place. And, and I have to ask this question. Many people today feel isolated and lonely, and maybe it's because the world has influenced our thinking to think that we really do matter, and we really are at the center. It's easy to feel lonely if that's the case. They even uh, looked at Zoom studies. Everybody's on Zoom these days. They actually did Zoom studies where they tracked the eye movement of people when they're on Zoom, and they found out that almost 95% of the time when people are on Zoom and their picture is up, do you know what they're looking at? Their picture. And you know, when I read that study, my, the first thought that went through my head is, how vain, how narcissistic, how self-absorbed can people be? Then I looked at my clock, and the second thought that went through my head was, I got five minutes, I wonder how my hair looks, I got a Zoom meeting. Now, here's the thing. We are not called to be the worldliness police here, okay? We're not called to beat the worldliness from everyone around us and just beat it out of our children and our spouses. When a L'Oreal hair care product comes on the TV and it tells your wife that she's worth it, we're not to tell her, nope, honey, you're definitely not worth it, okay? I'm just making sure, just making sure you're biblical, okay? We're not supposed to do that. In fact, it's quite the opposite, we are actually called to live in the world, engage with the world, love the world, but never be of the world. The early church actually had a slogan for this. They said that we are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world, which means we're supposed to be in society, in culture, but never go along with the sin of the culture or buy into the system of the culture that promotes sin. And Jesus is the perfect example of this, isn't he? Did Jesus live among sinners? Yes. Does Jesus have fellowship with sinners? Yes. Did Jesus speak with sinners and value sinners and love sinners and die for sinners? Yes. But Jesus never sinned with sinners. And he never gave validity to the sin of sinners. And so what are we supposed to do? How do we live in a world but not be of the world. Well, the angel here gives another image. This is in verse 9. He says that this calls for a mind of wisdom. And then he goes to describe who this prostitute is, who this beast is, who its heads are, and who its crowns are. But he says this calls for a mind of wisdom. When we see worldliness, we need a mind 
of wisdom, meaning followers of Jesus, need to be wise with regards to the way they engage the world. To be discerning with regard to the truth. To have our hearts so passionate about the truth of God that we are wise and able to discern what is true and righteous as opposed to what is false and worldly. And only then can we be wise and see worldliness, the prostitute, for who she really is. I like what, I like what it says here. It's brutally honest. John marvels at this prostitute. Right? He marvels a great marvel. He is in awe of this, mar- this prostitute. He doesn't dismiss the prostitute, which is what many of us do. We see worldliness and we say, that's not a problem. I don't struggle with that. And we're not overwhelmed by the prostitute and just say, oh, I, I'm just, I'm hopeless. I, I, I just surrender. I can't give in or, or I have to give in. I, I can't resist. But John sees this prostitute for who she really is. I like the way that Michael Wilcox puts it. He said, happy is the servant of God who is like John, who sees worldliness for what it is. And when seeing the loose woman, that is the prostitute, he learns to respect and to hate, to fear, and to shun Babylon, the great prostitute. That's the proper posture toward this prostitute. Not to dismiss her, not to be crushed by her, but to actually see her for who she really is and be wise as Christians in the face of her. And the way that we do that is we look to truth himself. We look to truth in Jesus. We allow him to influence our thoughts. We allow him to influence our actions. We allow him to influence our hearts. You know, I, I recently read a, a story of a famous Christian musician who walked away from the faith. And he cited a number of reasons why he walked away from the faith, but it got me thinking about other statistics that I've heard that college students, that when they go off to college, that the retention rate of Christians, once they enter the college sphere, there's a retention rate of Christianity among 30% of those who go to college. Only 30% of professing evangelical Christians that go to college continue to follow Jesus once they enter college, 30%. Or you probably heard these numbers too, that nuns, those people who don't claim any religious affiliation, that they now equal the number of professing evangelicals in the United States. Now, it's not that many people are going to college. When's the last time you heard a student go to college and just say, I read Darwin and I read, you know, Hume and I read Feuerbach and, and I'm just really rattled and I'm walking away from the faith. See, very, very often, it's not these big intellectual giants that sway us from the faith. No, rather, it's that we're often just so complicit and so saturated in worldliness that when we encounter those thinkers, any intellectual defense that we have against them at that point is as thick as a wet paper bag. Kevin DeYoung put it this way. He said, most of us and most people we come into contact with with, The reason they've walked away from Christianity isn't any direct contact with Freud or Darwin or even the new atheist that's infiltrating their belief system. 
No, it's the stuff they're flipping through on TV and the stuff they're putting in their ears. All of the thousands of ways in which in 21st century America, worldliness becomes and starts to look normal. Worldliness is everywhere and it quickly becomes our default mode and we're unable to think clearly, think wisely about truth and righteousness, falsehood and sin. There are some things that we should just not even allow to enter our thought process. Or there are things that we should not view and actually allow us to enter our eyes. Because even in allowing those things in, we are committing spiritual adultery. David Wells said, Worldliness is that system of values in any given age, which makes sin look normal and the ways of God seem strange. And isn't that what, isn't that what is happening in our world? That sin has been painted in colors of righteousness. That evil is applauded as normal and good. That our fallen fleshy desires are approved as accepted and normal. That we take the things of God, the things that God say, and they then become strange. The Apostle Paul said this about our worldly desires. He calls them the works of the flesh. He says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what worldliness does is it takes these things and it says these are normal. These are okay. Sexual immorality. Instead, we take that and we say, well, I'm born this way. This is who I am. Envy. We call that ambition, or that guy's got gumption, or that guy's just getting ahead in life. Sensuality. That's just exploration. That's just testing out new things. Idolatry and sorcery. That's new spirituality. We're We're just trying new things over here. Fits of anger. That's just called cable news and talk radio. Rivalries, dissensions, that's college football. Jealousy, that's reality TV. These things are just normal, though. And you might say, wow, that's a little bit extreme. Well, John gets to see it for what it really is. It's spiritual prostitution and war against the Lamb of God. That's how John describes it. And many of you might be thinking, you know, well, how do we even fight in this war then? And one one such way is we need to be wise to the ways of the world. That's absolutely true. But another way that John describes it, you know, in Revelation, John is making things symbolic. But in others of his letters, he actually makes things very explicit. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith overcomes the world. Faith conquers the world. Faith defeats the world. By placing your faith in Jesus Christ, that is how you overcome and conquer the world. It's that simple. You join the side of Jesus, the side of the Lamb, and as a result, you become a conqueror 
of worldliness. He fights for you. He dies for you. He forgives you. He gives you eternal life, and he makes you a family member in his family. And now, I know many people hear that. They say, oh, well, just put your faith in Jesus. That is way too easy. Christianity is, is just too simplistic, right? Have faith, pray, trust in Jesus, and you don't actually have to do something about evil and injustice and worldliness. And they say, faith, that's just not enough. That's too easy. And there's a measure of truth to that, friends. Christianity is simultaneously the easiest and the hardest thing in the world. It is the easiest thing in the world. All that Jesus requires to come to him, to enter his family, to have eternal life, to defeat worldliness, is to place your faith in him. It's that simple. You place your faith in Jesus, and that alone overcomes the world and earns you eternal life. But here's the other thing. It is actually the hardest thing in the world. Because if it is that easy, then the question I have for you is, how come you haven't done it? If it really is that easy, then why do we fail to do it? And the reason is very simple. It's because we love the world. We love the world. We love worldliness. We cherish it in our hearts. G.K. Chesterton once said, the Christian way has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. I think that's true. Because we actually love the things that we say that we hate. Even though you say you love peace, you relish anger and hatred in your heart. Even though you say you want joy in your marriage, you'd rather withhold forgiveness from your spouse to prove that you're right. Even though you say you want love and justice, you're quick to make sure that it's not extended to those people out there who certainly don't deserve it like you do. And you know how I know this is true? It's because I do it too. I do it too. That's why we need Jesus to conquer on our behalf because he alone can establish peace. He alone can bring joy. He alone can make his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And this calls for a mind of wisdom. And what John sees last gives us hope. Really briefly on this last point, he says, lastly, that worldliness will fall. Worldliness is going to fall. It has no chance. Last week, we heard about this great battle of Armageddon, where the kings of the earth and evil join forces and they battle against God. And this is not a literal battle that's going to take place, but it's a metaphor for how God will destroy his enemies. And we see the battle of Armageddon again here, but from a different angle. But the result is the same. John says this battle looks like this. Verse 12. He says, The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them for he is lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called chosen and faithful see we see here all the powers of evil assemble against god they're of one mind it says and they all seek to destroy the lamb and his followers but the outcome is certain the lamb wins jesus wins Though evil has a measure of power, though worldliness has a measure of power and sin has a measure of power, they're nothing more than a dog on a leash. Jesus is the king of the kings of the earth. 
And though the kings of the earth promote worldliness and sin and destruction and evil, Jesus will only allow them to go so far. He is king of kings, lord of lords, and he will conquer and defeat worldliness and the abomination that it puts into the world. And notice verse 16 and 17, how the prostitute falls. How does Jesus conquer? I love this. Verses 16 and 17. The ten horns that you saw, they're the beast, and they will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Do you see what's going on here? Here's this prostitute. Right, riding on the beast, thinking she has all the power in the world. She is squashing Jesus' servants and drinking their blood, ruling over the kings of the earth, seated above peoples, multitudes, and nations, making them drunk with the wine in her cup. But that power she thinks she has, that power of evil, ultimately leads to her own destruction. The beast that she's riding on turns against her and devours her flesh. She ends up being hated by the beast and the ten kings. See, evil, worldliness, destroys itself. It eats itself from the inside out. And there's no better example of this than the cross of Jesus Christ. Right, what happened at the cross? The power of Satan, the power of the beast, the power of the Roman Empire, the power of the kings of the earth, the power and evil in the religious leaders of the Jewish people, the power and the evil of the hearts of the people that betrayed Jesus, the power and evil of Judas, all conspired against God and thought they crucified God on a cross to finally deal the death blow in the war against God. And in so doing, they only turned the dagger on themselves. Because on the cross, even though they thought they were killing God, God was defeating the very power that they had, which is the power of sin, death. See, on the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus took sin and defeated it ultimately, turned it on on its head and gave forgiveness to people who were rebelling against him. In the resurrection, Jesus took death, which is the power of Satan, And he rose victorious over it. He conquered over it. Evil itself self-destructed on the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus wins. Friends, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords the one who reigns over all things, even over evil, and you triumph over it. You conquer it, Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord Jesus, would you give us minds of wisdom that know worldliness, that can spot worldliness for what it is, and that you would give us hearts and minds that are passionate for you, renewed by your spirit who lives inside of us, And help us follow 
you. Follow the Lamb and fight this great war that is before us. Wake us up to the war of worldliness, God. Lord Jesus, we pray to you, we honor you, we glorify you. You are King of kings and Lord of lords, and you win. In your name, we pray. Amen.